these issues, uh, these biblical issues, these issues that a lot of people may want to sidestep, but to do it in a biblical, uh, scriptural type of a way. And so this series has actually blessed me. Um, I'm actually one of your top cheerleaders from a distance. Uh, I look on uh, often from Facebook Live, and I listen to the sermons on the YouTube channel, and I just dearly love uh, Pastor John. He's actually opened his life up to me uh, in really sharing what it means to, to plan. I remember two, maybe two years ago, a year and a half, just praying about this idea of transitioning out of uh, Calvary Fort Lauderdale and, and going into North Miami where we'll be planting uh, and actually exploring what is that going to look like? What's that going to take? And, and John's been available to warn me and convince me not to do it. I'm joking. I'm joking. Um, any church planner would be like, don't do it. Just, just don't do it. Um, but it's such a beautiful thing when you see this baby birth um, and, and it's just been a blessing to look on from a distance and see what God is doing right here uh, at New City. And so give yourselves a hand for what God has been doing here. It's amazing work that God is doing. Um, and so now that I've kind of thrown it out there, I've kind of disclaimed, like, John is my brother. I love him. I will say this. Um, John, um, he, he has this envious kind of, I'm joking. Um, no, no. But, but I'm basically everything that John would want to be. So what, what am I talking about? Um, I'm a little bit of an anomaly. I'm a unicorn. Uh, I'm, I'm like a Reformed Baptist Calvinistic non-denominational Pentecostal. So that's, that's, that's what you guys are in for today. So, so saddle up. Like, I've never seen a Calvinistic Pentecostal before. Well, you met one today. Here we go. Um, so, so it's going to get loud. Uh, I want to give you permission to talk back to me. If you've want. If you got an amen in your spirit, if you got a yes, God, um, then say that. Uh, because I will preach. Um, but as well as teach. I'm going to teach the Word of God. Uh, and as you guys have probably already noticed, I have somewhat of a very chipper personality. Um, but the, the, the reality is the gravity of my assignment today is quite the opposite. There's nothing funny or chipper about what we're going to dive into, and so I'm going to shift gears from this chipper mindset into going a little deep now, uh, and typically when I teach, I love to give practical application by way of illustrations that may make you laugh and may make, may make you feel warm inside, um, but there will be really no practical applications other than me leading you in, having you step existentially into the pain of this subject matter. So that is your practical application. I'm going to say it right off the blocks. There will be this pain that I hope you do feel, this empathy that I hope you wear in your heart so that you may help the process of healing begin, the healing for those that have been affected by this ideology. And so I'm going to give you the title of my message, um, and it is exactly what Pastor John shared. Is Christianity a white man's religion? But in conjunction with my title, I have to let you guys know uh, that I do have slight ADD, and I can take about 26 rabbit trails within 25 seconds. And so what I'll do for those A-type personality people that go on those rabbit trails, what is he doing? What is he doing? Where is he going? Why are we here? What's happening? Oh my gosh, I'm confused. I'm confused. Um, so here, here Here's my message in one line, my premise, my argument, and it's simply this. Christianity is not, somebody say not. not. It is not a white man's religion. It is this distorted idea that has been widely held up through society and culture. It is indeed hurtful. And so what do we do with that? Well, we need to heal, be helpful, and finally, be hopeful. 
So that's where I'm going, and I'm going to unpack. I'm going to piece by piece look at these issues of, of the hurt. We're going to step into the hurt, again, existentially. Like, I want you to really feel it. I want you to wear the weight of it, even if this is something that you don't subscribe to. But, but step into it for those that have felt it and have been victimized by it. So we're going we're gonna to step into the hurt, but we're also going to talk about what it looks like to heal as a body, as a, a unit. And then we're going to ask all of us to be a part of the help, helping perpetuate the healing, and also we're going to look at hope. And so it's Revelations chapter number 7, verses 9. I'll read this aloud, and then I'm going to pray and ask God to help me to be a help for us to help each other. But it's this that the Lord would say through John on the island of Patmos. He says, after this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, not the white man's God, but our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Let us pray. God, it is with great desperation that I approach your throne of grace. Lord, help me preach this message and help everyone under the listening sound of my voice to feel the weight of this message and the truths biblically as we take more of a didactical approach, more of a scholarly approach, dissecting the scriptures and the truths behind this fallacy, Lord. Help me be a help. Lord, let this be edifying. Let this reach someone. If someone actually does subscribe to this fallacy, Lord, let them be conformed today. Let them seek repentance today. And if someone has been victimized and have felt less of a human being because of this, Lord, let the healing begin today. God, I've reached out to you, Lord, for help, and I pray that the help comes now by way of your spirit. Speak through me, Lord. Move me out of the way. You have more for these people than I ever could. You can offer more for them than I ever would. This is your message. You take over. It's in Jesus Christ's name. And everyone would say, amen. amen. Uh, really quickly, just want to throw this out there. Um, I would love to sit and talk or meet with you. Uh, again, I'm going to take more of a didactical discourse to this. Uh, in other words, it'll be very scholarly, a lot of scripture, a lot of historical narratives to kind of walk you through history uh, and why my premise actually stands up to be true. Again, if I was a attorney, if I was someone that was defending or an apologist, uh, this would be my apologetic, this premise. Um, and, and so I, I want to walk you through it. Now, also, if you want my notes, I'm willing to actually email you my notes so that you can take these truths as well and apply them in a very practical way. But if you're offended by anything that I say, just email John H at New City HH and I'll make sure that I answer all of your questions. Um, Speaking of offense, this illustration, probably one of the only practical illustrations you'll get at this point, uh, this is not to offend anyone, um, and you may be a fan of this individual. Um, she is widely known, um, and I'm not trying to defame her character, but I'm trying to build a case as to how our culture, um, particularly uh, pop culture or even just 
uh, modern culture has subscribed to this ideology of Christianity being a white man's religion or even Jesus being white. And so it's Megyn Kelly. Uh, she's an American journalist, a political commentator. Uh, she's a former uh, corporate defense attorney, so she knows what it means to defend a premise or build a case. Uh, and she also, some of you may watch this, she hosts a live uh, talk show on NBC, uh, which is entitled Megyn Kelly Today. And it was not too long ago that she actually said these words, and I quote, as she was dialoguing with some of her peers. Well, it's historically known that Jesus Christ was a white man, and we just have to accept that. This is Megyn Kelly. Now, this is not to defame her character. This is not to put her on the, the side of the wicked. I believe that Megyn Kelly is just naive and has been ignorant to the truths of Scripture. And so she's not been enlightened to what the Scripture says, and so she's taken this position. But not just Megyn Kelly. There's a lot of individuals that would take this particular position to say that historically Jesus Christ looked like Brad Pitt, a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Pastor John Hummus. But that is not historically, scripturally, or biblically how we are or should view Jesus. As a matter of fact, these are not my words. It's Matt Chandler, a popular uh, preacher out in Texas. Uh, and he said it this way, and I quote, Jesus, and this is a response to Megyn Kelly, actually. He did it in love and winsomely, but he also did it with authority. Jesus was not white. Jesus actually, from the line of David, was super Jewish. Somebody say super Jewish. That means he's really Jewish. And he was from Galilee. Chandler goes on to say, finding a white dude in Galilee in the first century is equivalent to finding Bigfoot riding on a unicorn across the rainbow. <laughs> that's, that's how likely it would be to see a white man, let alone Jesus. Jesus was not white, and so therefore, how could then Christianity be the white man's religion? Uh, I want to point out a few things here. In Scripture, I read and opened up, and I launched out with Revelations chapter number 7, but there's a key word, and this key word that I'm going to point out, and I'm going to define it for you. I'm going to give you the etymology, the root of it for you. These are big words I'm going to explain. Stay with me. It's simply this. Out of Revelation 7, which is the culmination of the Great Commission, it is literally what we look forward to, people from every, somebody say every, every tribe, nation, and language standing before the throne. Now that word every, here it is, this is going to tie us all together, and I'm going to work backwards scripturally, so we've got the culmination, and I'm going to walk backwards, but there's this beautiful word that threads it all together, here it is, it's the word every. The etymology, the root of the word every, it actually translates all. That word means pas in the Greek, pas, path ethnos, every ethnicity, every nation, pas ethnos, path, say that with me, pas ethnos, you're still with me. And so we see this word stand out. Now this word actually means radically all, like that's what it means, all, somebody say everybody, everybody, you can tell I'm from Miami, right? So everybody. It means every kind or every variety. And so we see this play out in Revelations 9 where it says people from all, or another translation says every nation, not just Europe. Every nation in heaven, the culmination of the Great Commission. Uh, Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, says it like this. He says, I supposed as John, he's speaking of John, as he looked at them in this revelation, he could tell where they came from. There is, individually, there, is, there is individuality in heaven. Depend upon it. 
Every seed will have its own body. They will sit down in heaven, not three unknown patriarchs, but Abraham, you will know him. Isaac, you will know him. And Jacob, you will know him. There will be in heaven not a company of persons all struck off alike so that you cannot tell who is who, but they will be out of every, someone say every, pas, that word, pas, every nation or pas ethos, ethne, pas ethno, ethno, ethne, and kindred and people and tongue. Now let's work backwards. You see, the culmination of Matthew 28, the Great Commission, where Jesus Christ tells us to go and make disciples, is Revelation 7. But what does it say in Matthew 28, 19? It says, therefore, go and make disciples of all. Someone say all. Pas. Ethnos. Same meaning. Same word. Same root. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son of the Holy Spirit. So, Christ now is telling the disciples after he's walked the earth blameless for 33 years, went to the cross, died, and he gave up his life that we might receive grace that we don't deserve. He says, go and now make disciples. I've demonstrated for you what it means to disciple people. Now you go and do it. But do it in such a way that you're reaching everyone, all, pas, ethnos. All. So this word is going to tie this all together. And so that is the culmination in Revelations 9. The culmination of what? Matthew 28, 19. But it goes further. I'm walking backwards. Matthew 24, 14, stay with me, says this. The good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to, someone say, all. Pas. Ethnos. Nations. And then the end will come. Listen, same root, same word. It's threading together. The culmination, Revelations 9, pass. The Great Commission, pass. Matthew 24, speaking of the gospel being preached to everyone, pass. Ethnos, nations, not just white Europeans. Walking backwards, Colossians now says it like this. It's Colossians 3, 10, verse 10 to 11, I'll read it aloud. You can follow along. We'll have it on the screen. It says, And have put on a new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, syntharian, slave or free, but Christ is in, say it, all or pas, and is in all, pas. Culmination of the Great Commission Revelation 7, Great Commission, we see pause. Matthew 24, pause. Same word right here in Colossians. The Apostle Paul uses that same root word, pause. Galatians now says it in chapter number 3, verses 26. I'll read through 26 to 29. It's, this is uh, Paul actually addressing uh, this idea of ethnocentric cultural superiority. What, what in the world is that, Darren? Uh, well, a lot of people see Galatians break down as, well, we're free. This is free. We have liberty. But a lot of people don't see the underlying thread in Galatians where Paul actually has this issue with Peter when Peter was trying to be all like, you know, super Jewish. And he's like, no, it's all about the Jews. And the Jews were trying to become Judaizers and saying, well, um, we are are the actual it factor, um, so we're going to push these Gentiles away. And Paul says, uh, no, sir. No, 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 no. Let me explain. Here it is. Uh, so in Christ, Jesus, you are all. Someone say pass. 
same word. You are pas, children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves in or with Christ. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor there is male or female. For you are all or Pass one in Jesus. So yet again, we see the culmination of the Great Commission, which uses the word pass every ethnos, path ethnos. And then we have the Great Commission, which pushes us out to go and make disciples to pass. And then we have this word of God going out to, into all the world, and it says pass. And then we see Paul, who uses the word pass in the Church of Colossae. And then we see him again confront this ethnocentric cultural superiority issue, and he's using the word pass. The word pass threads it all together. It's all, not just one. I was hoping somebody say amen right there. But then Deuteronomy 10 speaks of Jesus' unchanging character regarding one of the same issues. He says, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. And so if this is the unchanging nature of God, it then would be inconsistent to say that Christianity would only lean into, subscribe, or ascribe to one race. And yet we see this word pas in the culmination of the Great Commission, which then we work backwards and we see it in Matthew 24, and we see it again in Colossians 3, and then we see it again in Galatians 3. And so I could drop the mic, walk away, I've presented my case, but let's deal with the practicals. It's hurtful. We now know what the scripture says by way of the etymology, the root, all. It was never intended for the Christianity to become the white man's religion, but it has. We can't explain that away. We need to actually embrace the reality that it has, and there are people in this very room that have felt that have been on the receiving end of the scrutiny because of that, and so it is hurtful. And I want you at this point now to put down the scholarly hat and step into this issue existentially so that you can empathize with where we're getting ready to go. So I'm going to spend the next 15 or 20 minutes here breaking this down, and we're going to look toward hope. But it is hurtful. And so we see one of the components of the hurt is a mass exodus of black millennials and even uh, older black men and women leaving the church and entering into this ideology of pseudo-scholarship. There's guys, uh, you, don't have to name, you don't have to write these names down, but there's guys on the internet uh, like Dr. Umar Johnson, who's big on pan-Africanism. Uh, there's guys like Young Pharaoh, who's blown up on YouTube. Sarah Sutton-Setti, who's blown up on YouTube. They sound really, really smart, but they're completely unbiblical. But because of the lack of the church's part, and I say this carefully because I love the church. I love the church. I love what the church represents. But I also see that the church has not stood out and stood up in the face of injustice toward black people. And so what we see is a mass exodus of young black people who are seeing the same thing, and they're subscribing to what young Pharaoh's saying. See, because they want hope, and they don't think that the Bible offers them any hope. But Sarah Sutton-Setti is saying, guess what? Your melanin is beautiful. And from ages to ages to ages ago, millions and millions of years ago, it was all about melanin. And so they like that. They want to hear that. They're hurt, and they need to hear a message of hope. But this message of hope that the socially conscious community is perpetuating and spitting out is a fallacy. It's not biblical. And so they're being led astray. Why? Because the church is not leading them back home. And this 
Pseudo-scholarship would assert that Christianity was actually created at 325 the Council of Nicaea by Constantine. This is what pseudo-scholarship is saying. This is what the socially conscious woke movement is saying. They're saying Christianity, a white man's religion, was created by a white man named Constantine, and he had a bunch of white people in the room, and they picked out a bunch of scriptures, and they called it the Bible, and they presented this blonde-haired, blue-eyed, Brad Pitt-looking Jesus, and here you go. You take it now, black folks. It's your religion, but really it's ours. But buy into it because we want you to obey everything that we're getting ready to tell you. Hence the transatlantic slave trade, but we'll get there. But let me give you some facts as to how you guys can debunk. And this is why I need you to email me so I can get you my notes. Because when you come across the, uh, the black Hebrew Israelites, when you come across the five percenters, when you become across these socially conscious individuals that follow the Cyrus suit and cities and the young pharaohs and the Umar Johnsons that are trying to debunk Christianity and trying to devalue and make us look, well, really pointless, here's what you tell them. The Council of Nicaea was actually not a place that instituted Christianity by Constantine because 12 years prior to that, Constantine actually issued the Edict of Milan. And the Edict of Milan was to stop persecution of, someone say, Christians. Wait a minute, Darren. So if Christianity started at 325, listen to the timelines. If it started at 325, then how is it that 12 years earlier they were called Christians? Wait a minute, though. Not only was the Edict of Milan instituted 12 years prior, um, what really was taking place in the Council of Nicaea was a man named Athanasius. Athanasius was considered the black dwarf. He was the front runner, and he was contending against a guy named Arius concerning the essence of Jesus. Had nothing to do with handpicking books of the scriptures and putting out this white Brad Pitt-looking Jesus that we're going to present as Christianity. No. So you mean to tell me that in Nicaea there was a black dwarf that actually was contending um, against a guy named Arius for the essence of God? Yes. And so how could it then be, uh, young Pharaoh, that uh, Christianity started in 325 when there was a black dwarf named Athanasius that was contending for the essence of Jesus? Pseudo-scholarship. And emotions will lead you that way. But if you look at historical timelines, you'll see Athanasius was contending in Nicaea. But also, what about the Coptic church? Acts 8 narrates for us an Ethiopian Enoch, or eunuch, who's given credit for starting this Coptic church. This Coptic church was Ethiopians. This is going back to Acts. Matter of fact, the term Christians actually was used not at the Council of Nicaea in 325. As a matter of fact, Acts 26, you can look it up. They are called Christians. So then how can you tell me that at 325, a bunch of white people handpicked scriptures and they presented this Brad Pitt-looking Jesus when we see the Edict of Milan given by Constantine 12 years before to stop persecution of, someone say Christians, we have a black man named Athanasius contending at Nicaea, and so he wasn't having that white man stuff. Oh, this is going to be a white man's religion? Athanasius like, hello, hello, I'm the black dwarf, hello, right? That's what would have happened if that was actually the case. And then we've got the Coptic church, and we've got the word Christian used in Acts. And so, therefore, this all took place some thousands of years before the transatlantic slave trade. So the Nicaea argument simply self-destructs. But has Christianity been whitewashed? Yes, it has. Let's just be honest. Let's, let's take an honest dive into reality. It has been whitewashed, and I've got a, a text I can show you, or I've got a, um, 
a book I can point you to um, if you would take a chance in your leisure to read this book called How Africa Shaped the Christian Mind by Thomas Oden. And again, if you email me, I'll get you this stuff. Um, but it captures how this guy named Adolf Van Harnack, Adolf Van Harnack intentionally, purposefully removed, eradicated, plucked out all African contributions to Christianity. Hence the beginning of the whitewashing of Christianity and many after that. And so we see if we look down the road of historical scholarship on all book covers, guys like Athanasius would actually be painted white. If you look on other book covers, people that contributed from Africa that are actually dark-skinned, even Jesus and paintings of Jesus, he looks like a blonde-haired, blue-eyed European. And we see even modern culture has subscribed to this ideology of white Jesus, hence my opening illustration, Megyn Kelly. And so, yes, it has been whitewashed over the years. And in the whitewashing of Christianity, then you see something even more painful, and that is slavery. We've got to deal with it. We can't sidestep it. Let's just face it head on. We see slavery in the Bible, and again, pseudo-scholarship has intoxicated and distorted scripture and it was then embraced by the Europeans to help perpetuate the transatlantic slave trade or better yet justify their behavior regarding the transatlantic slave trade but when you think about slavery in the Bible number one you've got to ask one question um, which type of slavery are we talking about because there was different cultures. You had the Jewish Hebrew slavery. You had Canaanite slavery. You had Persian Babylonian slavery. You had Assyrian slavery. You had Greco-Roman slavery. Now, Exodus 21 builds a beautiful framework for what slavery really was in the Bible. And it is totally antithetical to what we see in the transatlantic slave trade. As a matter of fact, Exodus 21 shows us that slavery had a beginning and an end. It was actually for people to work themselves out of debt. So it was a beneficial opportunity to say, hey, listen, um, I'm low on cash. I don't know if I can pay you back, but um, help a brother out. Let me go ahead and work for you, or whatever the case may be. But you couldn't steal a man from his family. You're like, Exodus 21, 16 actually prohibits man stealing. That wasn't what the transatlantic slave trade was doing, though. Well, then how did they justify that? We're going to talk about that in a minute, but here's the deal. When we look at the idea of slavery, because of the harsh treatment that Africans, people of melanin color, endured, immediately their mind goes to this transatlantic slavery, and we don't look at biblical slavery for what it actually means and how Exodus 21 gave a benefit and it really laid out for you protection and it laid out for you what slavery should have been. It was an opportunity to work, to get yourself out of debt. If you were, if you were hungry, you could work for your family. But there were so many guidelines and barriers of protection when it came to Hebrew slavery, but that even gets distorted. How, you ask? Well, I'm glad you asked how. You guys are a bunch of scholars. Well, here it is. It's the poor exegesis of Genesis 9, 18 through 29. You can read that for homework. Uh, hence, the curse of Ham. This curse of Ham actually was used and embraced and taken by Europeans to, again, as I said before, justify their harsh behavior toward people of melanin pigment because of a very, very poor hermeneutical exegesis. You see, um, they said because of the curse of Ham, 
that all black people were not of God, that all black people should be in slavery for perpetuity, in other words, permanent. There was no out, there was no end date for them. They couldn't get saved. They had no souls. They weren't created in the image of God. They were cursed, ham. But the truth is, here's facts. If you properly exegete the text, if you go back and read and really pluck out, exegete what it was saying, this is Noah now. He's laying naked. Son Ham sees him exposed. And so Noah issues this curse. Now here's the deal. Ham actually had four sons. Canaan put Mizraim or Egypt and Cush. A lot of people would say that the curse was on Cush. Now, Cush are the Cushites. They are people that settled below Egypt. They are black people. Hence, Moses married a Cushite. The Bible says a black woman. And so put that right there. We're going to come back and get that for a minute. Um, but the truth be told, the curse was never on Cush. It was actually on Canaan. You see, if God had an issue with the Cushites, then it would be inconsistent to God's character and his nature to then look on at Miriam, Moses' sister, and curse her with leprosy because Moses married a Cushite. So God had a heart for the Cushites. So then if he cursed the Cushites, then what's the problem with what Moses' sister was barking about? It was Canaan. And what did God do in Canaan? He overthrew the Canaanites. Why? Maybe because they were cursed? Would you think? But the poor exegesis of that perpetuated the transatlantic slave trade. And then we see this issue of slavery in Ephesians 6. And again, those slave masters use that not knowing the proper ideology or the proper interpretation of slavery in the Bible, not knowing the proper interpretation of Genesis 9, this curse of Ham, and not really reading Exodus 21 at all, which protect and perpetuated proper slavery in the Bible. And so, yes, that hurts. It's 400 years of hurt. Men being stolen from their families, taken from their mother country, and brought here to be enslaved with no end day perpetuity, and being told and made to believe that they have no soul and they have no value. That hurts. And if I'm to be honest... As I've been for the last 23 minutes, we're really not that far removed from that hurt. Jim Crow laws was what, maybe 50 years ago? That's not really a long time, guys. So there's still that type of pain that persists in the hearts of people that have been damaged and wounded by it. Yes, it is hurtful, but what do we need? We need to heal. And how do we do that? How do we heal? I was talking to one of my road dogs, Daryl, on the way over here. I said, what does healing look like? He says, well, healing comes by way of a relationship with God. Well, what does a relationship with God do? Well, it helps us to be more like God. Well, what did God do? Well, God looked on at us in our imperfections, in our fallen condition, and he drew near and he walked with us and he talked with us and he shaped us and he molded us and he actually lived a life that we couldn't live and he died a death that we could not die and he actually gives up his spirit that we might have his spirit living in our hearts so that we can go and do what it is he called us to do. But that is grace. Grace is something that's given that we do not deserve. 
And so we walk in grace through relationship with God. And if we're being shaped and molded from glory to glory with unveiled faces into the image of God, when we look in the mirror, we should see the image of God looking back at us. So then, therefore, God extended grace to us in our brokenness, in our sinful state, and daily he extends grace, then we have to extend grace to those that use this toxic theology to slave us. Now, that doesn't mean forget all about it. That doesn't mean, oh, look at it as water under the bridge, Darren. Let it go. That doesn't mean just kind of sweep it under the rug. You see, I'm of the mindset that you, you take the pain of your past and don't forget it, but actually let it remind you of how far God has brought you from. You can clap right there. Amen to that. Because some of you had some messed up shady past. I'm, I'm one of them. I'm a mess. I shouldn't even be here right now. But God, by his grace, looked on and he changed my life and he molded me and formed me. And it was through forgiveness and through his grace that he was able to then use me for his glory. But I remember some of those things. I remember some of the ways in my past because I can look on and celebrate how far only God, for his glory, he brought me. It's by his grace. So we live in that grace. And so... We, we need to forgive. And why do we forgive? Because Jesus Christ tells us to forgive. He's having a conversation with Peter in Matthew 18, 21, verses 22. It says this, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Let me frame it this way. Lord, man, they're saying that Christianity is a white man's religion. They've got scriptures that tell me that my life has no value. They've enslaved our people. For 400-some years, and we've been segregated through the Jim Crow laws, and you mean I'm supposed to forgive that? Even now we see injustices with police brutality. I'm supposed to let that go? And Christ says, let it go. Because from the very beginning, all of us, by way of the first Adam, thought that we'd be better than him. Absolute more glorious through our selfish aspirations. And what did Christ do? He looked on and says, I'm going to let that go. I'm going to go ahead and die for that. I'm going to go ahead and give up my spirit for that. I'm going to go ahead and eradicate this Mount Zion that has boundaries or Mount Sinai that has boundaries and we're going to look toward Mount Zion where you have an all-access VIP pass. At his death, the veil of separation was torn in because his spirit lives in us. He let all of that mess that we started in the beginning go. And we have a different hope. So I'm saying, if you want to heal, if you've been inflicted by this issue, which is a very real issue, you got to forgive 70 times 7. Let that stuff Go. And you're not doing it for them because guess what? They may not even care. They may still subscribe to and espouse and champion this idea that Christianity is a white man's religion. Look, scholarship says it. All the historical narratives show it. Athanasius was actually white. No, they painted him white. Let it go. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness isn't really you wanting to see them change, forgiveness is you changing your view toward them because Christ changed his view toward us. What's the next thing we need to do? And I'm almost done. We need to heal, but we also need to be helpful. 
maybe be helpful. In other words, maybe you weren't affected by this at all. Maybe you sit here now for 30 minutes or so and you're saying, Darren, I, this is good, but I've never really felt this. I've never ascribed to it. Uh, I know the historical narratives, um, but there's people that are sitting amongst you that are hurting. And so it would be selfish to walk out of here to say, well, this doesn't affect me. It doesn't apply to me. No, you have a responsibility to help your brother and sister heal, bear the burdens of your brother and sister. But how else can you be helpful? Educate yourself. Number one, embrace this. Don't leave here saying, oh, that bald-headed, bearded guy was good, but I don't know if I really believe that. His exegesis was horrible. No, 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 no. I gave you scripture. I gave you historical narratives, timelines, and now embrace it because it's real. The pain is real. The truth hurts, and it's real. So embrace the truth, and then not only embrace the truth, but actually educate yourself regarding the truth so that when you face other people that actually feel the same way that you might have felt um, or maybe feel the same way that you don't feel, but you see someone out there that's ascribing to this mindset that Christianity is a white man's religion, you can say, well, why don't you go ahead and read the works of one of our church fathers, Augustine, who was an African. Yet historical narratives would paint him as a white man. Why, why don't you check out the works of Josephus, who was an African? You can read that by the author William Winston. Again, I'll email this to you if you want to talk to me later on. Um, did you know maybe that John Mark, one of the writers of the gospel, he wasn't a white guy. He was a Cyrenian, northern Africa. Embrace that stuff. Know this stuff. Why don't you read, perhaps, one that's embraced by Dr. Tony Evans, one of our contemporary theologians, um, where he chronicles and captures black and brown presence in Scripture, all throughout Scripture, chronologically. Go read that book. Go read these documents. Go read these materials. Be helpful so that you can perpetuate the healing process for those that have actually felt the pain. As they're forgiving and healing, you're helping. Embracing the truth, educating yourself regarding the truth, and finally... Friends, we can be hopeful. We can be hopeful because in the beginning, and I'm going to start, I'm going to close where I started. We saw this word in Revelations 9. It was the word all. The word all, the etymology of that word means what? You should know it by now. Pas. All. That means radically all. All ethnos, pas ethnos, all nations, everyone, people of different tribes, tongues. That's what Revelation says. Revelation 7 is the culmination of the Great Commission. We backed all the way out and into to show you what that looks like and how that plays out. But listen, here's even a more glorious hope. God is going to make right everything that went wrong all of those years, and his just and exact judgment will go forth. It's Revelations 21, read with me, and I'm done. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. That is a beautiful thought. 
and he will be, or we will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. The old order of things has been passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, listen, here's the justice, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, and those who practice magic arts, get this, and the idolaters and liars, if you've been lying and perpetuating this fallacy of Christianity being a white man's religion, and if you bought into the curse of Ham, and if you hurt people because you actually perpetuated this transatlantic slave trade, well, guess what? You're a liar, and you will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is a second death. There is a hope of heaven. There is a hope of God's exacting justice. There is a hope for us to heal if we embrace the fact that it was hurtful, but if we forgive, we can be hopeful. Let me pray for you. God, thank you so much for the opportunity to share your word. Thank you for these that were assembled today to hear your word. I pray, God, that they felt the weight of the conviction and the truth of what I just shared. I pray that they feel the love and the hope that you provide for us in the cross. I feel that they experience, I pray that they experience your grace and they understand your grace. That this is a journey, a journey toward Revelations 21. And we're nowhere near yet, but we look toward the greater to come, which is our hope of heaven. So God, I just now pray that as we leave here today, if there's anyone that has been hurt because of what has happened over the historical narratives and because of this fallacy, this lie, pray that you would start that healing process for them. I pray for those that have not been affected by it, that they would feel the the pain empathetically and that they would be helpful to aid in the process of healing and that together we would lock arms and look toward our hope, which is heaven, that we would dwell with you, every tribe, every tongue, every ethnicity, pas ethnos, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Thank you for your work, Darren. You, you framed it well for us, both in the reality of history and in scripture. And I hope today a couple things. One is, if you've never heard this, and if your skin color is white like me, you will realize that these are serious questions that brothers and sisters have. And if we're really going to walk in love, we have to be willing to understand that these are real questions that people are wrestling with. And we have to make this a place where we can deal with those questions together. But then secondly, as, as Darren said, you know, just to realize that many of our brothers and sisters of color have never had a white person engage them on those issues in a way that's actually healing. Many, many people um, just say, I don't see it, so it must not happen. And that leaves people in a place where they're without hope. And so we, as a family, have to be willing to have these dialogues and have these conversations and really listen to what each other is saying. We have to be one. 
And that doesn't mean it's not a mess. I know some of you didn't understand some things that Darren was talking about because you'd never heard them before. But now you had a chance to understand where your brothers and sisters are wrestling with because he explained them to us. Here's the reality. Where we are headed is every tribe, every nation, every people, every language. That's human destiny, to be worshiping Jesus together as a diverse body. So we need to start practicing that reality now. Even if it's uncomfortable, even if it stretches us, even if it causes us to forgive in ways that we had not thought about before, we've got to do it. We've got to be one. Let's sing that out right now. Would you stand with me as we sing this song in closing?